You're now listening to the Live Different Podcast with Matt Wilson. What's up, Live Different Podcast listeners? It's Matt back with another amazing episode of this podcast with Yes, Yes, Marsha. She is a storytelling coach and quite a character. I was really appreciative of all the things that I learned on this podcast, speaking with her, and hopefully you will learn them too. But first, I wanted to tell you, I wanted to ask you actually, if you had seen or listened to rather episode 138, Seven Figure Business Method, Breaking $1 Million as a Digital Nomad is a podcast that I was on with Chris Reynolds. And funny little thing happened when you share your story. I think this is relevant because this podcast today with Marsha is about storytelling. Good things happen. What happened was I told the story of under 30 experiences on that podcast. And guys at a company called VTC Firms heard it. And they made an awesome, awesome video for me. They took all this video footage over from under 30 experiences and laid the podcast track down over top of it and created a really cool three-minute video uh, that just encompasses how much they loved hearing the story. And yet they put it into video form. So if you'd like to see it, I'd love for you to go over to instagram.com slash TV and check it out. For the second round, they... polished up the video for me, asked for my edits. I did a polished voiceover and I got to say it is pretty cool. Would love to share that with you since today, again, it's all about storytelling. It's amazing what happens when you put your story out there. So if you haven't heard that podcast, go and listen to it. I believe it's number 138 and check it out. Hit me up on Instagram if you have any guest recommendations, what you want me to do more of, what you want me to do less of, would love to hear from you. Continue to build this awesome community. And uh, thank you guys for listening in. Enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome. I'm your host, Matt Wilson. And today we're here with Marsha Shander from Yes, Yes, Marsha. She is the author of off the mic, stand-up comedians get serious about comedy. While she is not a stand-up comedian herself, I think she's a quite funny lady after seeing some of her YouTube videos. And uh, she is a storytelling coach, helps people, uh, everyone from entrepreneurs to TED speakers, craft their messages with maximum impact, empathy, and effectiveness. So I'm excited to talk to her today. Marsha, Welcome. That was a lovely intro. Thank you. It was the second time around as the first time the, the good old fashioned call recorder got messed up. So I had I had one repetition under my belt. <laughs> and doesn't that tell you that maybe every single time you should do a little practice run? <laughs> I always feel like that. <laughs> With the call recorder actually <laughs> running so you can get all the kinks out of the system. Exactly. I feel like every time I do talks where for whatever reason I've ended up having more of a chance to practice, you know, it got cancelled and rescheduled. It's always so much better. And I'm always like, oh, note to self, practice more often. Sure. And the thought actually went through my mind. uh, And this is, as a podcast host, this has happened plenty of times where you have to reintroduce somebody Occasionally, I'll fumble. Well, more than occasionally, I'll fumble through someone's bio and uh, I'll say, you know what? Let's do that again. Uh, I've, I've called people by the wrong names. I mean, I've done a couple hundred episodes, so y- you get some things like, like that happening. But through the bio, I thought, all right, make this one really good because of this. <laughs> it's the second time around where one could maybe think, oh, let me just cut this short and get right to the point. But I think this is like good lessons for life. Like one of the things that I teach with storytelling is that people seem to think that storytelling is this skill that you have or you don't. And it's not. It is a learned set of rules. People who are good at it are just using those rules and they've just practiced it more than you have. But I think people think that you should never practice your stories, you know, that you should just be spontaneous. But actually, people like me who tell stories all of their time in their day to day, we practice. Like I bike around. I kind of, my thoughts tend to process as conversations. So when something 
happens to me immediately my brain starts turning it into a story and I'm kind of sub, like semi-subconsciously practicing it to myself and so if you're bad at telling stories don't be afraid to practice and I just mean alone in your bedroom because it makes the world of difference. Marcia do you have a friend a go-to friend who you call and practice on? Well, I tend to, I find that it's fine to practice. And this is the thing is like, it's good to practice on people, but it's so much pressure that it's actually fine to practice by yourself. When I'm telling stories on stage or doing talks, I tend to practice them when I'm biking around Toronto. So if you live in Toronto and you've seen a woman pulling up at a stoplight muttering to herself, (laughs) it's probably me. And then practicing alone in your room. And so then I will start to practice, you know, if I have a big talk or a workshop coming up, then I'll get a bunch of friends over and I'll, I'll run it through with them, you know, or sometimes just even with my sweetheart, she has to listen to a lot of my talks. And so I think it's good to have friends that you can practice on, but I think people don't realize often the benefits of just practicing alone in your bedroom. Because when you say stuff out loud, it's very different from when you say it in your head. If I'm working with someone on a talk or on a story, I'll give them the structure and I'll always say the first pass is to read it out loud. And as you read it out loud, you'll edit because you might write things down. And when you say them out loud, be like, oh, that isn't something that I would ever say in real life. And so then you change it. And also that's how you get it into your bones. That's how you remember it as you experienced just now with my bio (laughs) sure that makes a lot of sense i'm curious as a public speaker myself when i know the material inside and out when i'm really confident about what i'm going to go up there and say i don't feel that i need to memorize i certainly go through the points or if I'm using slides or whatever it is that I'm, I'm, I certainly rehearse, Mm -hmm. but what are your thoughts on memorizing? So I've learned that this is different for everyone. Say I'm working with someone on a story. I always used to say, just do it in bullet points, because if you have an exact script word for word, then if you get lost, it can really throw you off. And also sometimes when we script stuff out, it can sound, you know, when you're speaking on stage, you always want to be using language that you would use with your friend in a coffee shop. If you're speaking to a technical audience, you might use language that you would use with your technical friend, but you don't ever want to say things, you know, you don't want to say denim clad, I rose from my chair, because you'd never be with your friend in a coffee shop going, anyway, so denim clad, I arose from my chair. You'd say I was wearing jeans and I stood up. And so that's the language that you want to use when you're speaking in front of a room full of people. And so I also suggest not scripting things because you don't want to deaden the language like that. But for some people, they totally freak out if they don't have a script. So I think there's a certain extent to which it's changes from person to person. I also think that If you're doing a a talk and it's a big deal, it's important to do what's called content mapping, which is going through your talk and figuring out where you're going to emphasize, you know, where you're going to pause and writing it on some kind of a script in a way, because sometimes the way that you say something is really important. You know, sometimes you want to have the important thing at the end of the sentence, otherwise you lose people. Or you want to make sure that you're, if you're introducing a new idea, then you make sure that you emphasize those words so that people kind of go, oh, let me take that in all these different things. And so with that, it is useful to have a script. But I think even if you do have a script, you then want to distill it down to bullet points so that you have the main ideas so that if you do lose your way, you're not totally freaked out. You can kind of find your way back. So I think it depends person to person. Uh, That's good to know because I tend to really visualize the beginning of my talk, especially when that's the time where you might have some jitters, when you really need to make the best first impression. And then once I'm into the content and the meat of whatever my talk is, then, all right, I can just go because I I better know that stuff like the back of my hand. But to establish the relationship with the audience at first, I will really visualize that in the closing as well if I want to make a point at the end to make a really good impact. Uh, Do you see other speakers using that strategy? Oh, yeah. So there's a psychological phenomenon called the primacy effect and the recency effect. And what they mean is that we tend to remember the first thing that someone said and the last thing that they said, and then we kind of extrapolate that across everyone else. 
So I used to DJ. So I was a radio DJ for 15 years. And part of my job is that sometimes I would DJ in clubs. And I didn't like beat match or anything. It was indie music. But I, I feel like I was pretty good at it. So one time I was DJing at this radio awards show. So it's like all of my peers, you know, people kind of below me who might look up to me and then all of my radio heroes. And, you know, it's a big night. Everyone's drunk. So usually these nights are pretty easy to DJ. And because I knew about the primacy effect and the recency effect and the recency effect is greater, I would always choose my first record and my last three records in advance. So there was 400 people on the dance floor. Everyone's drunk. Everyone's dancing. I go on. I put on the first record, which I've planned. Whole room cheers. I'm like, oh man, this is going to be easy. Over the course of the next half an hour, I proceed to bomb. Every record I put on, more and more people are fleeing the dance floor until there's maybe 10 people on this 400 strong dance floor. It's crushing. (laughs) You know, this in front of my peers, in front of my heroes, in front of people who are supposed to look up to me. But then it gets to my last three records and I would always have big hit from the last few months, then classic old school banger and then whatever the biggest song around was. So I put on big hit from the last few months. This little cheer goes up and about 50 people come back on the dance floor. So I'm like, okay, this is slightly less embarrassing than 10. Then I put on the old school banger and about 150 people come back on the dance floor. So I'm like, okay, now the dance floor is half full. Like this is definitely respectable. And then I go to play the last song and I would always do something where I would leave enough of a gap that they could start a thought, but not finish it before the next thought comes in so that they would go, oh, she's forgotten to put on a record. No, she hasn't. And it's this one. And this giant cheer erupts across the whole room and 200 people come onto the dance floor. So the dance floor is full. And I think, okay, well, at least my shame was saved right at the end. For the whole of the rest of the night, And this has happened to me multiple times. And if you meet anyone who's a DJ, they will tell you that this happens to them. For the whole of the rest of the night, people came up to me and went, Marsha, your DJ set was amazing. And it wasn't. (laughs) It was a total ish show. It was a disaster. But what was amazing was the last 10 minutes, the first three minutes and the last 10 minutes. And that's what people remember. So it's the same in your talks. You know, the most important part of any talk or any story, whether it's written or spoken, is the first 30 seconds, because that's the point where people decide whether or not they're going to listen or whether they're just going to pretend they're listening and glaze over, or if it's written online, whether they're going to click away or, you know, video. And then the second most important is the last part, because that's what people are going to remember. And it doesn't matter what else happened. I used to manage a singer songwriter and he used to want to end on this big kind of noodly, let's all wig out with our instruments song. And I would always be saying, Sam, people are going to think you're a psychedelic wig out band <laughs> when actually you're not. You kind of play these sweet indie tunes. His name's Sam Isaac you know, this like warm acoustic indie. And so that's what you need to play at the end. And that's why Bon Jovi, you know, will end his stadium shows with Living on a Prayer, even though that song is whatever it is, 25, 30 years old, because he knows that everyone will leave high as a kite because they just heard Bon flipping Jovi play Living on a Prayer live. And so that's why always, always practice the beginning. I mean, I think practice everything, but particularly practice the beginning, really practice the end and always know how you're going to get out of it. And that applies whether you're telling, you know, a one and a half hour talk on stage or whether you're telling a story to some friends, always know your last line and how you're going to get out of it. Okay. I I never considered that with telling a story with your friends and absolutely, I, I can totally see it now. What are your thoughts on brevity, Marsha? Because some people can hold the audience for a really long time and other people, you tend to lose them. So I'm curious what your thoughts are. So it totally depends on your audience. If it's you and your best friend, you can probably tell a story that lasts for 45 minutes. If you're on music radio, you probably have 20 seconds. And so it really depends on where the audience is, whether they're expecting a story. Even one of the things I do is I do a lot of workshops for corporate groups. And sometimes they say, oh, but you know, I couldn't, I couldn't tell a story because people aren't expecting it. And I always say humans are humans. We connect to stories. It's primal. It's how we passed on information, not before we had the internet, before we had books, before we had writing (laughs) stories of how we pass down information. And so you'll make that human connection. But if you're speaking, say, to the board of directors and they're not expecting you to tell a story, you need to flag it. You need to say, okay, I'm going to tell you about X, Y, and Z, but first I just want to tell you a quick story. So then they can relax. So they're not sitting there being like, where is this going? And with them, you will have to be a lot more concise than if you're standing on stage at a storytelling show in West Toronto where everybody's expecting you to tell a story. 
But brevity is important. I am someone who had to learn that. I am Russian and I came from a family where stories are our currency. And I was the person who'd always tell stories where um, my friends would be clapping their hands on their foreheads and saying, can you please get to the point? And I'm there being like, and then we went outside and there was a tree and it was green with beautiful leaves. And next to it was a small mushroom. And it was kind of gray and had this, you know, the, the, I wanted to tell every single detail. And then I got a job in music radio and suddenly I had to get my stories from 20 minutes down to 20 seconds. Because after 20 seconds, the jingle kicks in and you have to stop talking because someone else is. And it was brutal. But during that, I learned both how to cut things out and also how to get the most bang for your buck within those 20 seconds. But one of the things with cutting things out is you always want to ask yourself, what is it that I'm trying to get across? And do I need this detail in order to do that? And so sometimes what you're trying to get across is like the message of the story, which is, you know, never wear red shoes to a dog's wedding. But sometimes what you're trying to get across is just, I went to this bar and then my mum came in and then she was really drunk and that was weird. And so that's fine. Like that can be, but, but maybe something else happens, you know, maybe somebody turned up at the bar wearing a rabbit costume and it was so cool and interesting, but you don't need it to get across what you want to get across. And in literature, they call this murdering your darlings because that's how it feels. You're like, but the bit with the rabbit costume was so good. But you just, if you want to hold people's attention, you can cannot put every single detail in and you can't try and tell them four stories at once. So you have to decide. And one of the things that I say to people is every story we tell is edited. Some people might say, oh, I don't edit at all, but that's not true. If you didn't edit your stories, then your stories would say, I walked into the room and there was a man there and he was wearing brown shoes and green trousers and a red jumper and he had brown hair and he had blue eyes and he had a small scar next to his thing. Like every story would be like that and that would be bananas and it would last forever. And so you're already editing your stories. And so you just need to edit them to say, what am I trying to get across? And do I need this detail in there in order to get it across? And if not, it goes. And maybe you use it in another version of the story or in a different story. I found that as a blogger, and I probably started blogging around 2008, and that was the emergence of Twitter. That 140 character limit was really helpful for me because I got to work on my brevity all the time and mm -hmm. my emails became shorter and more concise and to the point. And then I read uh, On Writing Well by William Zinser. I'm not sure if you're, are you familiar with the mm, book? I'm not, no. William, I'm writing it down. You would really like this book uh, because he talks a lot about brevity. And sometimes when I write something, especially the first draft, it's like, I don't know, my brain works in chronological order. And so if it's a story, I have told all the details as they pop up in my mind as I'm recalling it. And then I have to go back and like, oh my God, cut that out, please. Yeah. Or, or don't ever start a story with, I woke up, right? And why don't you tell them what you had for breakfast too? It's probably not relevant and everybody in the world starts their day the same way. We all have to wake up. Right, unless your story is, I woke up, and I heard a noise and I was terrified. Yeah. Because then we're like, ooh. <laughs> yeah, totally. So Marion, there's my favorite book, if you want to write stories about yourself, is a book by a lady called Marion Roach Smith called The Memoir Project. And she talks about, I think she's actually quoting someone else, but she talks about the vomit draft. And that's your first draft. And that your first draft should just be, like you can't edit and create at the same time. So your first draft should just be you vomiting everything out and you just writing everything down and then you go through and you cut. But also she talks about, like, don't think that those things are just going in the garbage and you're never going to see them again. Save them somewhere. If there is a really lovely moment or a lovely detail you can't use in this story or in this version of the story, save it somewhere because it might come up somewhere else. Sure. Okay. I, I like that. I've just pulled up her website and we can link all this in the show notes. This will go up here on, on iTunes and on the Under 30 Experiences blog. And I I think, Marsha, you said that you were going to have 
a site also that you could link up some of your notes. Yeah, which I guess you can link to too, but I'll make a special webpage for you called yesyesmarsha.com forward slash live different. And I'll stick the memoir project on there. The memoir project, by the way, is a really thin little book. It took me months to read it because I couldn't read it without writing. My sweetheart calls it laxative for writing because you read two pages and you just want to go and write and write and write and write. So if you have any interest in writing stories about your life, whether it's, you know, because you want to publish a memoir that's a bestseller or whether you just want to write them for your family, for your kids or your parents, then read this book, The Memoir Project. It's really just a wonderful book and so funny as well. She's so funny and so kind of concise and it gives you lots of ideas. Great, great. Well, I can certainly use some writing laxatives, anything that motivates me to to get what I have out. That's excellent. So, Marcia, you said you grew up in a Russian family mm-hmm. that storytelling was like currency. And then I'm I'm curious how you you really took hold of this storytelling a hobby and now profession. Yeah, it totally happened by accident. But definitely, I mean, whenever I do workshops, I'm always saying like any Eastern Europeans in the house and people put their hands up and I'm like, stories, right? And they're like, oh my gosh, totally. Because I call my mom and she doesn't say, hi, darling, how's Toronto? She says, so I'm in the Gare du Nord in Paris and I see that my train is leaving in two minutes. So I run across, like she can't not speak in stories. Yeah. And then, as I said, I went on radio and I suddenly had to cut them down. And then I I got into, there's a a live show in the US and a podcast called The Moth. And I became completely obsessed with that and would listen to the podcast all of the time. And I bought CDs and kind of spent three months just listening exclusively to Moth stories. And then I was living in London at the time and I found a show in London called True Stories Told Live. And I went and told a story and I found it to be this very profound experience. I told a story about my granny who died a few years earlier, who I'd grown up with, who I was, was so beloved to me. And through the act of telling the story, I felt like I got to spend time with her which it took me years to discover what was going on there. But what I now know is the neurology of storytelling, which is that when you tell a story, your brain lights up as if the story is happening. But what's even cooler is when you listen to a story that happens to you as well. So if I would tell you a story now, Matt, about smelling coffee, your olfactory cortex would light up if we stuck you in an MRI machine. If I were to tell you about grabbing a pen, your motor cortex would light up, specifically the part related to hand movement. And then what happens is if it's happening live, our brains start going in sync with each other. And I feel like we've all experienced that. You know, when you're in a room, when someone's telling a story, it doesn't matter if it's one friend telling it to four friends or if it's, you know, a stand-up comedian telling it to a thousand people in a big theater. There is this kind of alchemy in the air when a story is being well told and everybody is listening. And I realized that it's not alchemy, it's neurology. It's everybody's brains all lighting up in sync with each other like a giant benign alien invasion. And anyway, so when I moved to Toronto, I asked them if I could start True Stories Told Live had a few different shows or, you know, other people had started them in other cities across the UK. So I asked if I could start one in Toronto and I actually discovered that there's a huge storytelling scene in Toronto. There's a traditional scene that's been running since the 70s and now a true storytelling scene that's been running for about 10 years and and a bunch of us who are kind of pulling the two scenes together there's maybe 15 or 20 different regular shows here. And so I started my show and I started it. If you ever want to start a live event, I highly recommend starting it A, in a venue where even if no one turns up, it doesn't matter. So that it's like small enough that even if it's you and the five storytellers, that's enough. And B, somewhere where you can get the venue either for free or for very cheap. So you don't expect to make any money off it. And I got the venue. I knew the guy that ran the coffee shop. So he gave it to me for free. And the first show, three people came and one of them was my mum, who happened to be in town. <laughs> you know, and the second show, four people came and then it went back down to three. But we now have regularly between about 80 and 200 people come to each show. And um, and I coach all of the storytellers and we have a two-year waiting list to tell us story. But I was still doing this just for fun. And in the meantime, I started a business coaching, teaching networking, teaching you how to make friends with people in your industry and not be terrified of going to events. And more and more people started asking me, well, would you do the story coaching for money? And I started to figure out actually how I could take it into organizations, into corporates and NGOs and nonprofits. And now that's what I do for my job. And I can't 
believe it, Matt. Like I cannot believe how lucky I am that my job is to talk to people about storytelling and to hear people's stories. It's amazing. And because my brain thinks the story is happening to me, it means I get to have all these experiences that I would never want to have, you know, but I get to know what it's like to run face first into a black bear and then be sort of snuffled by it while you lie there pretending to be dead. You know, I know what it's like to go tree planting in BC, which is, again, it's kind of seems awful in a way, like I never want to do it, but I know what that's like now. I know what it's like to be giving someone CPR while a surgeon splits open their chest with a scalpel. Again, I don't want to have that experience, but I feel like I know what it's like to have that experience. And that's such an amazing and fun thing about stories and such a thing that I can't believe about my job. Well, that's really cool. And you can obviously tell in your voice how much you enjoy it. And Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask in your book, Off the Mic, that it basically opens with, hey, I know you've thought about wanting to be a stand-up comedian or or at least try stand-up. So have you tried it? So I worked for years. The book came about because when I worked at my old radio station, XFM, I used to do this podcast, which is still floating around iTunes somewhere called Marsha Meets, where I would do long form interviews with stand-ups. And we'd kind of get really nerdy about stand-up comedy. And people would say to me, do you think that you're a stand-up, you know, in the way that like music journalists often secretly want to be musicians? And I said, you know, I don't think so. And I tried doing improv and that wasn't quite the thing. And when I moved to Canada, I was like, oh, no one knows me here. I could try stand-up. And I tried it and I just hated it. I hated it. I was very good on stage because I've watched so much stand-up. You know, I knew all the tricks to kind of make people laugh, but I hated the writing process part of it. I found it so stressful. And one of the things for me is when a joke didn't land, I found it so crushing. And I've interviewed enough stand-ups to know that sometimes your jokes don't land. Like it doesn't matter how funny they are. And then I found storytelling and realized, oh, this is the thing. Because I've always been very funny when people aren't expecting me to be funny. But when people expected me to be funny, I really wasn't that good. And with storytelling, people don't necessarily expect you to. My friend Graham Isidore always says, Storytelling is like stand-up, except if a joke doesn't land, I can just tell you that I was trying to be interesting. (laughs) And then if people don't laugh, he says, in that moment, I was trying to be interesting. Yeah, for me, I, I briefly tried it. It's absolutely not for me. If somebody else wrote my material and it was really good, I'd love to be a stand-up. And and I knew it was always funny. But yeah, I can't take dying on my ass on stage. And I hated the writing process so much. Well, I really like your explanation of the difference or your friend's difference yeah. or your friend's explanation rather. Yeah. And I think sometimes there's not much in it. If you go on Netflix, there's a guy called Mike Babiglia who has a bunch of specials and he considers himself absolutely to be a stand-up and not a storyteller. But if you watch his stand-up shows, and there's a few of them, a really good one called My Girlfriend's Boyfriend and a couple of others, you'll see that it's just stories, but he's so funny. He just tags them with a lot more jokes, but he still has the quiet moments in them. And I think that's the stand-up I've always loved the most is stand-up where it has quiet moments in it. And so I think there is kind of, you know, and I have a lot of stand-ups who come and do my show and some of them just kind of treat it like a comedy show and other of them like really find it hard that they're not tagging every single line with two punchlines. But I think there is a pretty fine line between the two. Marsha, I wanted to ask you a, a question that you've probably been asked before, but you live in Canada. Mm-hmm. You said you lived in London. I assume that you're from the UK. Is that correct? Yeah, I'm from the the UK. Like I lived in Russia till I was two and then I moved to the UK. Okay. Is there something about Americans or North Americans being more attracted to the British accent and that being somehow funnier to us? Because I think there's something there. A thousand percent. When I did improv, I did a year of Second City in Toronto and I was fine at improv. You know, I wasn't a disaster, but I was not brilliant. And there were so many times where I would realize I wasn't being funny and I just would go full British and everybody would fall about laughing. (laughs) And I think generally like North Americans just laugh more. You know, when I do keynotes now, I go back to the UK sometimes and the first five minutes I'm like, oh my gosh, everyone here hates me. And then I realize, oh no, they're just British. They just don't laugh as enthusiastically. You know, and then the next keynote will come on and I'll be in the audience and they'll say something I think is a really good point and I'll start clapping and then just be like, 
oh, it's just me. <laughs> nobody, else, <laughs> nobody else applauds until the end of the talk when it's the time to applaud. And so I think there's also just, I mean, it's one of the things that I love about living in, in Canada is, and working in the US so much as I do is there's just a lot more enthusiasm here. You know, we're very cynical as Brits. And I think it's this kind of thing of like, well, I don't want to laugh because what if nobody else laughs and then I look stupid? So it's much better if I just sit here and look cynical, first of all. I mean, Brits obviously have a long history of humor, but I think there's like, and sometimes I like that snarky cynicism, but generally I think there's a lot more enthusiasm here and yet also being British. I mean, especially in Canada where the queen is on the money here, you know, I feel like people are a bit obsessed with, not not all people obviously, but a lot of people, like someone in, I'll be walking down the street and I'll just say something and a stranger will stop me and be like, I love your accent, but they'll say it like I'm putting it on, you know, they'll say it the way they'll be like, I love your shirt. And uh, everyone's like, thank you. So yeah, it's, it's awesome. I definitely have gone have become way more British since I moved here. That's really funny. I, I actually, I heard John Oliver say something similar on Jerry Seinfeld's show, Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee. And he said, yeah, he gave this funny little bit about how he was in Scotland once and there were two people in the room and then they, both of the people eventually left. So he was, <laughs> there was literally nobody else in the show. Oh my God. But then you get him talking about American politics and for whatever reason, people really find it. And and also in, endearing for whatever reason. And, and even because the words are a little bit different, I, I guess, you know, you, you do use different words. I do have to listen a little bit more closely or whatever the accent is. Yeah, I never yeah. thought of it like that. That's true. And I think also the Brits have, there's definitely cliches, you know, the three cliches I think about us is one that we're smarter than we actually might be. You know, one is that we're a little bit smarter. One is that we're a little bit funnier, but also that we're more arrogant. I have to be careful. You know, I have to like make sure I'm never trash talking Toronto or Torontonians or Canadians anywhere in earshot whenever I'm, I meet up sometimes with other expat friends. And and I love this city. I have a tattoo of the CN Tower on my ankle, like I'm committed. But as with anything that you love, sometimes there are flaws. But if I'm ever saying it to another British person, if I'm in public, I have to drop my voice because people already assume I'm arrogant. And definitely when I move here, when I moved here at first, First, I think I had some like cultural clashes with that because a lot of my humor being British is to talk about how amazing I think I am because I think it's funny because obviously nobody would ever talk like that. But I think right. because people here kind of do talk like that and because people think that British people are arrogant, you know, I'd be out and I'd be like, oh my God, everyone in this bar is staring at me. It's so awkward when this happens. And people just wouldn't laugh. And I'd be like, oh, I guess I'm not funny here. And then now in retrospect, I'm like, oh, they thought I was being serious. <laughs> They thought, I actually thought everyone was staring at me because of course I am, because I'm amazing. Yeah, for whatever reason, whenever anybody wants to imitate a snobby person, they throw on a, a real hard British accent and it works. Yeah, or an evil villain. <laughs> That's our other thing. Yes. In cartoons. That Okay, I'm thinking of Austin Bowers, but right. did Dr. Evil have a... British accent? I can't remember. I don't uh, think so. No, he's American. But he should have. Yeah, he should have. But I think in a lot of car kids' cartoons, they tend to have British accents. Definitely is an evil sound. Although I always say, I'm, this is my one, I did one stand-up show and I talked about being Russian and coming from a family of people with an accent much more evil than mine. I'm sure that works as well. I, I saw some of what you said about your grandmother and, and storytelling. And that was uh, yeah. actually, if anybody wants to look that up, that's definitely worth worth the watch. Okay, you know what? I'll stick it on. This is story. That's the first story I ever told on stage, actually, a version of that. So I'll stick it on the secret webpage on yesyesmarsha.com forward slash live different. I'll stick the granny story on there. Excellent. Okay, I, I wanted to ask you, Marsha, also about how people can meet people in their industry whom they would like to network with. I saw that you had described yourself as a networking mentor, and I had never heard the term before, but I thought it, it was quite interesting. First, though, I did want to ask you to kind of dispel what some people think is a little bit icky or sleazy about the term networking, if you hear where I'm going. 
Yeah. The reason people think it's sleazy is because of two things. One, they think it's about brown nosing and talking about how amazing someone is. And it's not. And secondly, they think it's about talking about how amazing they are and bragging. So I think they think it's like a combination of brown nosing and being like, hi, Matt. Oh, you're so incredible. I love your podcast. It's the best. Listen, I'm incredible too. Here's all the reasons I'm incredible. And like, of course, we're scared of that. I used to be terrified of that. I used to go to conferences and just hide in the washrooms for three days because I didn't want to have to do that. And what I discovered, and I discovered this through the combination of getting a bunch of jobs that were very sought after. The radio station I worked at, XFM, when I first started working there, everybody I knew wanted a job there and there was only so many. And I got the job. And then I chose music for TV shows, um, for some shows in the UK that were pretty big, made in Chelsea and a comedy show called The Inbetweeners. And so it was, wasn't just that I got those jobs. It's the, once I had the job, suddenly I was the one getting 300 emails a day. I was the one who people wanted to network with. And what I discovered is that it's not about schmoozing and it's not about talking about how great you are. It's just about making friends. I used to call it making industry friends. You know, it's about going to a networking event and walking in the room. And instead of being like, I have to network, it's walking into a room and being like, who would I be friends with irrespective of what their job was and finding those people. And it's about you know, if there are a particular group of people that you need to make a connection with, it's saying, how can I make a friendship-like connection with them? And the other thing is, it's a long-term relationship, not a one-night stand. And so I actually think that introverts make the best networkers because introverts tend to be about fewer, deeper relationships. And if you think about it, you know, if, if somebody said to you, oh, you know, can you recommend someone for this job? And there was two different people you knew would be great for it. And one of them was someone who you just met at this networking event and they had such a great elevator pitch and they went around the room and spent 30 seconds with each person and they really could like talk the talk. And the other person was someone who you've been meeting for a coffee with once every three months for the last four years. Who are you going to recommend for that job? It's going to be the coffee person, right? Because you actually have a relationship with them and you trust them. Like we've all had jobs where we're working with people and we're like, how did you get this job? You are totally incompetent. And it's because they're really good in interviews. (laughs) And so similarly, maybe that person had really good patter, but they're not actually good at what they do or reliable or nice or hardworking. And so, you know, the person that you're, that you know, you're much more likely to recommend. And similarly, it's about building relationships. So whether it's, you know, the CEO of your company or your business hero, you've never met. If you just steam in being like, hi, help me, please mentor me. Then they'll be like, well, I don't know if I trust you. Whereas if you can gently add value over time by sending them an email link to something they might find interesting, and it doesn't have to be to do with the industry. You can just look on their social media and see that they're really into this is us and then say, oh, I saw this interesting article that was an interview with the writers of this is us. Thought you might be interested in it. You know, I saw on Twitter that you're watching the new season and then send them that link and then gently over time, you're kind of building up this sense of goodwill with them and reciprocity as humans were wired to want to reciprocate. And so if you do nice things for them, then when you ask them a favor and you make it very clear and you, you ask it respectfully in a way that shows you'll still like them if they don't do it, then they're much more likely to want to give you one than some rando stranger. I totally agree. And personally, I, I always try to come up with ways and not in a disingenuous way, but ways that are truly genuine that you can reach out and connect with people who you haven't spoken to in a while, but you want to keep up that relationship and you want to provide value in some Mm -hmm. way. Uh, So I try to do that. And I also was looking to teach that skill. I, I recently keynoted at the Collegiate Entrepreneurs Organization National Conference, and nice. it went really, really well. And I got several, more than several people come up after and say, hey, look, you know, would you be interested in mentoring me? And I'm happy to be generous with my time and all of that. But I kind of looked at the person like, all right, what's next? Or I would get uh, Instagram messages the next day like, hey, do you want to connect? I'm like, uh, yeah, but I've got some things going. I've got, it's, it's Saturday. I've got some things going. <laughs> and so I was trying to coach the college students through, hey, look, that's not exactly how it works yeah. if you're looking for a mentor. I'm sure there's a handful of people from that conference listening in right now. So could you help walk 
people through that? Okay, so first of all, stop thinking that there's like one mentor and they're like your Yoda and then they step in and that's it for life. Yes. And they'll just be like, hi, I'm your mentor. Like it's so nebulous. So first of all, start thinking about having lots of mentors, which is different people that you'll ask for advice from different things. Secondly, add value before you ask for anything. You know, like you said, lots of people came up and were like, could you be my mentor? And it's like, well, you can't actually mentor all of them. And what does that even mean? So ask for something specific. Don't say, will you be my mentor? Say, can I, you know, take you for a coffee and ask you about a specific thing? You know what I'm going to add to this secret webpage to the yesyesmarsha.com forward slash live different. I'm going to add, I have a couple of email templates and I have one for asking, uh, just because you mentioned it, one for asking a favor from someone you haven't spoken to for 10 years. And I have one for how to get a coffee or a Skype meeting with someone. And so I'm going to put those two email templates on there and I'll put them, you don't have to sign up to my mailing list or anything to get them. I'll just put them on there for you to download their PDFs. But yeah, so first of all, ask for something specific. Don't ever say, will you be my mentor? Because it doesn't mean anything. You know, a mentor could be someone who moves into your house and lives with you for three years, or it could be someone who you have a five minute email chat with every four years, you know? And so ask for something specific. Think about having lots of different mentors and yeah, build up relationships. You know, I, I have helped people who I've been friends with for years or who I've, some of them I haven't even been friends with, but they send me an email every six months. And those are the people that I help as opposed to just random people who ask me for help. Because sometimes I do put a lot of effort into helping those people and then I never hear from them again. And I'm a bit like, well, F you. Why have I put in all that effort? And so you don't want them to think that you're one of those. And actually, if you just come in and say, hi, will you mentor me? To me, that's a red flag. To me, that says that you probably will be one of those people because you're asking for a lot and you're not respecting the fact that in this interaction, I have a lot more to offer you than you have to offer me. And that doesn't mean don't ask for things. It means be aware of that dynamic and be respectful of that dynamic. And so there's different things you can do to add value, as you said. And you know, do you know what the simplest way to add value is? So I truly believe that all anybody wants in life is one, to feel truly seen and heard and understood and like they belong. And two is to feel like they've been of service, that they left the world better off than they found it. And if you tell someone that they've been of service, that's huge. If that person were to message you and just say, hey, your talk really meant a lot to me. Here are the things that I'm going to do differently and I will report back to you. And then in two weeks or a month or whatever, they write back and say, hey, Matt, I told you that I was going to put this, this and this into practice. I have, and here are the results. And now I have a question, or this is the next thing that I'm going to do. That's going to make you feel so good. You know, the people who are giving advice tend not to be in it for the money. If they did, they wouldn't be giving advice. They'd be busy making more money on Wall Street or something. And so... If you just say to someone, I call it, I actually, I'll stick another video on the secret webpage called how to warm up a cold contact. And it's doing what I call the, you transformed me compliment, which is to say something that you did made my life better. And it could be as simple as I really enjoyed your talk. Every time I open my computer, I'm going to think of you, you know, or something like that. But you're basically saying as a result of something you did or said, my life is better. That's really good advice. I appreciate how just being honest with people and telling them, hey, this is extremely helpful for me. Thank you for doing this. You changed my perspective on X, Y, or Z. That really justifies people's efforts. That's really gratifying for people. Two people come to mind who were really big on this former podcast guest. One was the former president of Starbucks, Howard Behar, was on the podcast. And I just couldn't, honestly, I couldn't believe that he wanted to spend an hour talking to me. And he was all about uh, what he called servant leadership. And he said, yeah, I just want to serve. He's made tons of money. And he just wanted to be helpful to people because he has a skill set and he didn't just want to, you know, sit on the beach for the rest of his life. And he said, please genuinely reach out when you have a question or the other guy that had been just extremely generous with his time. His name is Joe Kay and people can go back and look through the archives, but he, he founded two really iconic surf companies, Billabong and Hurley. Uh, Hurley ended up selling to Nike, but he was just someone who, you know, he sits on boards of directors now and uh, does some consulting, but he really wanted to just help young people with their businesses. And just by making that person feel 
appreciated. They absolutely love that. And so I, I'm glad that you addressed kind of that power dynamic, uh, if you will, where you're looking at your quote unquote mentor and you're like, oh my God, what do I have to offer? So that's really helpful. Mm-hmm. And I think people like people can never hear that enough as well. A friend of mine recently met Liz Gilbert. So Liz Gilbert, who wrote Eat, Pray, Love, she's very prolific on Twitter and on Facebook. In my head, like, I don't actually believe that she and I aren't friends. Like, I, it's really hard for me to believe that we're not friends, even though she has no idea who I am, <laughs> because she has that kind of personality. And she's helped so many people. She's helped me. And I know that there are like a gajillion people around the world. She probably gets fan letters all day, every day. And a friend of mine met her the other week and said to her, you know, really briefly, like, I just want to tell you, like, here are the reasons you've really made a difference in my life. And she said she hugged her for like 20 seconds. <laughs> Wow. And it's just, you know, and that she wasn't like, yeah, 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 take a number. <laughs> of course you do. Like it really, really matters. And I feel like I hear this all the time for people. And I've had that experience. There's a person in the UK, um, Jack Munro, who writes cookbooks. And I read this cookbook that they wrote and I it really helped me. And I'm I'm kind of into writing thank you cards. So I decided I was going to write them this thank you card. And I thought, my gosh, they probably get thank you cards once a day from people saying, because their whole thing is that they write recipes that are easy to follow, that are quick and that are cheap. And that, where you can find all the ingredients in the corner store, which for someone like me, who's never been able to cook, is totally intimidated by, you know, opening a cookbook and they say, get some saffron. And I'm like, I don't know what that means. <laughs> I don't know where to buy it, what it looks like. And um, and it was so helpful. So I wrote this card and I thought, oh, you know, should I say why it's helped me? And I thought probably this person gets 20 cards every day from single parents saying, my child was on the verge of starvation and you changed our lives. And there's me being like, oh, I wasn't that good at cooking and now I'm a bit better. But I thought, okay, well, nothing to lose, you know. So I wrote the card, sent it off to their publisher, forgot all about it. And then somebody tagged me on Instagram because they had taken a photo of the card I wrote. And I just had signed it Marsha in Snowy Toronto. And I hadn't written, you know, my email address, my phone number, anything. And they wrote, Dear Marsha in Snowy Toronto, I just read your card, had a little cry, and now it's up on the mantelpiece. And so I was like, wow, that's amazing. And then a year later, something came up on where I ended up commenting on their Instagram. They had come out as um, gender non-binary and it had actually led to me having a conversation with one of my nieces about the gender spectrum. And, and so they'd posted a picture where they talked about being trans and I had commented and said, Oh, you know, it led to me having this conversation with my niece. Thank you so much. Thinking like, they're not even going to, they get so many comments. They're not even going to respond. And they wrote, Marsha, your card is still on my mantelpiece. I think this is like a $3 card that I sent, you know, a year and a half before. And so People, I think, you know, I think in our culture, generally, we don't compliment people. We don't thank people for things or we think, oh, I don't want to bother that person. And so it can make a huge, huge difference, And especially sending physical mail. Most people who have mailing lists legally have to put a mailing address at the bottom of their mailing list. So that's one way to find an address. Or if somebody's ever written a book or, you know, worked at a company, you can just send it to their company and eventually it'll get to them. And it's so meaningful. I get at the bottom of all my emails, it says, I love real mail. And then it has the Yes, Yes, Marsha company address. And every now and then I get a card and it just thrills me. It makes me so happy. And so sending a little physical thank you card is great. Second, send an email. Third, just comment on their blog, comment on their Instagram post, and maybe they'll never respond, but I promise you it will mean so much to them. That's amazing. I I wanted to share. I, I recently saw this about two days ago. My girlfriend and I were in a restaurant that she just absolutely loves. It's a raw food restaurant. It's called Sayuri's and it's here in Bali. And we walked in and the famous Sayuri, the woman's name who owns the restaurant was there. And she, you know, she has her cookbooks around the restaurant and her face is there. And I didn't know who the the woman was, but (laughs) so Louis, my girlfriend sees this Japanese woman standing there and she was so thrilled to see the woman whose food she's been uh, obsessed with, mm-hmm. that they had this exchange that it was like they were friends for the longest time. And I was like, wow. wait, did you know her or did you not know her? <laughs> or when do you walk into a restaurant and just start <laughs> hugging the chef because you love their food so much? But the woman was just thrilled that somebody thought so highly of her food. And right. uh, I mean, yeah, it it worked, but it was a, it was a genuine interaction. But yeah, yeah. 
saw it with my two eyes. And it's moving. Yeah. I mean, I think sure. when we, we hear about like celebrities think, oh, I don't want to sign an autograph, but I think that's people being rude. A friend of mine is the tour manager for a really big comedian. And he said, now people will just film. They'll just be sitting having lunch and the person at the next table is filming them. And he has to go over and say, stop being so rude. Like if you want to come and say hello, come and say hello. And so I think people are like, oh, like anyone who, you know, I consider a celebrity doesn't want to be bothered. But actually if you're coming over to say something lovely, then they do. And as long as, again, as long as you're respectful about it, as long as you don't take up too much of their time, you don't kind of say, oh, can you tell me, you know, the answer to the meaning of life? You know, can you mentor me? (laughs) As long as you are respectful of their time, it's really meaningful to people. And that's how you build relationships. And I know, and I think commenting on blogs actually is such an easy one. Um, One of my mentors was telling me that he gets so many emails that he actually just will blanket delete 50 emails at a time without reading them. And I'd said, but what if it's someone who's commented on your blog? And he said, if I recognize the name, I'll never delete it. I'll always read it. I may not respond, but if I know the name, but if it's some, you know, he gets, I think, randos emailing him all day, every day saying, please, can you answer all these questions for me? And he just doesn't physically have the time. So he just has to delete them. But whenever he knows the name, then he'll click on it. Yeah. I mean, just being part of people's communities, I I think is so important. And blog comments go a long way. I mean, a random email, that's kind of your place in your inbox. That's where all your to-dos and your bills and your everything else, your real work that you're supposed to be doing. And and you have to prioritize that. But when someone takes the time to comment on your blog, Mm -hmm. I think that means a lot. And when you're, it sounds superficial, but the really great way to keep in touch with people who maybe you don't get coffee with, but once every five to 10 years is to comment on their social Mm -hmm. media and say something genuine because... People care about that stuff. They really do. Totally. And I would add, like with the email, because it's the place where we have our bills and to-dos is so miserable, a nice email goes a long way. But if it's someone who you know is getting a ton of emails, make sure that they know your name before you email them. And the way that you do that is by, you know, if they have social media or blog responding to that. And with this stuff, you know, maybe you're thinking about somebody in your company who isn't on social media or doesn't post anything personal. Then there's different ways that you can do that, even if it's just seeing them and saying, hey, I really enjoyed that that talk you did or thanks for that memo you sent out or, you know, I appreciate whatever it is. People will always invest time in someone, more time in someone they've already invested time in than they will a stranger. And so there's other ways that you can kind of create that, even if people don't have a big online presence, which is just to have a conversation with them, you know, at the Christmas party and then send a follow-up email. The important thing is to always send follow-up nice to meet you emails. Um, In fact, I'm going to give you three email templates. I'm going to put a nice to meet you email template as well, which is just whenever you go to an event, anybody who's vaguely connected to the industry that you're in or that you want to be in, just send them a nice to meet you email. Because then if you want to get in touch with them further down the road, they can see that they've already met you. And I've had emails like that from people where I'm like, I don't remember having met you, but past Marsha thought that you were all right. So I guess you must be. Excellent. Marsha, this has been extremely, extremely helpful. Thank you for for being so generous with uh, your templates and your links and all of this stuff. And I want to be respectful of your time. And uh, thank you for, for mentoring us, of course, here on the show. But if people want to reach out to you to be part of your community, I know, of course, you have the link in the show notes that we can provide, but where can people find you online? So come to my secret webpage just for you, which is yesyesmarsha.com forward slash live different. I'll put all of those email templates up. I'll put up the couple of videos that we mentioned. You don't have to sign up to my list to get those email templates. But I'll also put a little thing if you want to join the Yes Yes family. I have a great guide for the magic bullet for storytelling, which is emotions. And it's a video. It's very silly. There's one point I'm dressed as a therapist giving therapy to myself. There's another point where I'm dressed as like a one hit wonder from the 70s. But it's pretty fun. And uh, so you can get all of that if you go to yesyesmarsha.com forward slash live different. And can I say, Matt, thank you for being so thoroughly researched. I do a bunch of these kind of interviews and often people are like, so stories, huh? And that's pretty much it. But you really have like know stuff about me and it makes it so much easier and more fun to speak. And exactly what you just said, where it feels like we're old friends as soon as we started talking, which has been so nice. I've really enjoyed this interview. Thank you. You're very welcome. I, I appreciate that. And I'm I'm glad that doing the legwork pays off. And so, so thank you. Thank you for, for recognizing that. I, <laughs> I appreciate it. And uh, 
Yeah, I think everybody's going to get a lot of value here. So thanks again. And can I just say, we're doing the legwork. That's another thing for networking, right? If you have a coffee with someone. Now, Matt, if you email me and say, can you do me this favor? And if some other person who I did a podcast interview with emails me and says, can you do me this favor? But they didn't do any research, then I'm much more likely to want to help you. (laughs) You know, because I'm like, well, Matt made the effort. So now I'll make the effort. And so if you are meeting anyone for a coffee or a Skype, make sure that you do your research in advance and you know stuff about them because they'll it'll show that you you know are really invested in this relationship with them. Thank you so much, Matt. No, you're welcome. Thank you, Marcia.